2: Just a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violence and torture and may not be suitable for all listeners. In early February, Louisa Lovelock was waiting in the chilly basement of a cafe in Beirut, Lebanon. She was there to meet a man she wanted to interview. But when he arrived, he was not what she was expecting.
1: I had some idea of what had happened to him. And it was a real shock to see him for the first time.
2: Louisa was reporting on Syria for the Washington Post and was about to start down a path that would end with her revealing a litany of horrors that were taking place in a Syrian hospital facility. This is the story of how she did it. I'm Maeve McLennigan, and this is The Tip-Off. The podcast where we take you behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. Peaceful protesters were attacked and killed. The bloodshed had begun. Humiliation, then execution. That's the fate the enemies of Islamic State know they face if they're defeated or captured. Air attacks by regime forces resumed and specifically targeted the last remaining hospitals in Aleppo. The news coming out of Syria has been unrelentingly horrifying for the past six years. Barely a week goes by without the documenting of another atrocity. But beyond the bombs and gas attacks, journalists have been working to piece together the evidence of something more calculated and systematic going on. Sometimes in facilities you wouldn't expect.
1: Prisoners have been tortured in their beds, they've had... Um, life-saving medical treatment withheld, and when they be, when they finally died, they have been sort of sent for mass burial. Uh, my name is Louisa Lovelock, and I am a Middle East correspondent for the Washington Post.
2: Louisa has been covering the war in Syria since November last year. I spoke to her over Skype from her apartment in Beirut, on a rare morning when she wasn't scrambling to cover the latest atrocity from the Syrian civil war. Can you hear me?
1: Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. She explained
2: how the inspiration for one of her biggest stories to date came when she noticed a tantalising detail in another reporter's story.
1: And it was a very brief mention, but what the story what the story referenced was a a guard who had effect, effectively executed a dying man in his hospital bed.
2: That mention of the hospital bed stuck in
1: Louisa's mind. It was such a shocking detail that I couldn't get out of my head and I you know I questioned it and I thought this really is the stuff of horror movies. According to the article it had taken place
2: in a facility called Hospital 601. A remarkably anodyne name for a place that she would come to find out held such horrors. Her interest peaked. Louisa started to search online for more mentions of the hospital but with little success.
1: Next time I met a former detainee, I, you know, I asked about it, I heard nothing. And then I started asking every time I interviewed a former prisoner, you know, Hospital 601, have you heard of it? For a time, no one can shed any more light on the issue. But then... I was interviewing a war crimes investigator a couple of months ago now, where we spoke for about two hours and I was getting ready to go. And I finally just thought, oh, I should should ask him, have you heard of Hospital 601? And he just stopped and he said, no one ever asks about Apollo 601." Yes, I've spoken to survivors. And it was sort of from then on that we started really focusing on it.
2: How do you tell the story of a secret torture chamber when there's 70 miles and a civil war between you and the truth? Louisa decided the first thing she needed to do was find people who'd been in the hospital. Easier said than done, when tens of thousands of people are estimated to have died in Syrian detention. But Louisa is well connected, and finally she was able to find someone surprisingly close to home, a young man living in Beirut. So Louisa picked a local cafe she thought would be quiet enough, and waited for the man to
1: arrive. Well, so this, the first interview we did, uh, in in some ways, was the most shocking. You know, we met this gentleman in a in the basement of a cafe. It was quite it was quite hard to work out where to meet him because you needed somewhere quiet where he was comfortable, but also, you know, where we could spend a good amount of time and not feel that people were listening to what we were saying. So we actually went to a cafe that Syrian run, sat in the basement, and then he turned up. And it was almost a shock to see how he looked, because I had some idea of what he had been through. But this is a guy who is a, you know, a very tall, sort of good looking man in, you know, hipster glasses. And it's very difficult to look at him and appreciate what you've been through, what he's been through. Of course, you then see the photographs and you hear his testimony and you see his wounds and that's quite another matter, but you would pass him in the street and never have a clue that he had lain in this hospital and been detained in these appalling conditions for so long. They ordered
2: tea and over the coming
1: hours, his story came out. So he was a physics student from Damascus who was involved in the protests in 2011 and he was finally arrested, actually, from his physics exam. the uh, I believe it was the army who came to Damascus University and told the teachers that they wanted him. There was a standoff outside the university where the teachers essentially insisted that he was able to sit and do the exam. And so he, knowing what was going to happen to him, had to sit in an exam hall with the soldiers outside, and halfway through, they came in and took him. He said that he was tortured initially for about a week through... Um, I think it was two separate into security branches.
2: By late 2012, the man was so ill from his treatment that he was taken to a medical facility, Hospital 601. Huddled in the corner of the cafe, this man told Louisa how he had shared a bed with other detainees, who one by one would disappear and not return. One day, he was allowed to walk to the hospital bathroom alone. Louisa remembers how, as he told his story, the man's eyes raised up to the ceiling of the cafe.
1: He was remembering.
2: As he pushed open the door, he realised the room was filled with dead men and boys.
1: The people in front of
2: him were people he had shared beds with, he had shared the ward with, you know, he knew who they were. He'd been recalling how the bodies were piled up, higher than his eye line. Everything was about control, he told Louisa, describing how detainees were chained to their beds and packed so tightly that they sat with their knees jutting into their rib cages. The man spent a month in the hospital before he was released. He showed Louisa photographs of how he looked when he finally got out.
1: He, in the photographs, was emaciated. It was actually very shocking to me to realise how much weight it is possible for a a human to, to lose in the space of a month, which is how long he was spent in this facility.
2: It was a shocking story, but you need more than one person's account to stand up a story this big. So Louisa pushed on, reaching out to contacts throughout her network.
1: I use that network to, to you know, draw other people into the network, right? You speak to people who, who you trust and then you say, oh your friend in so-and-so area, can we talk to him? And you sort of go from there.
2: Soon she found herself boarding a plane.
1: So I went to Istanbul in late February, I think it was. It was very, very cold. And I met the gentleman in, in his office. He still works as a member of the Syrian Opposition. And it was very sad in many ways. And we sat and interviewed him for about three hours in his office, where you realise that he has been through hell. I met him with my colleague, Zach, a Syrian colleague who worked on the story with me. And it was an incredibly harrowing interview. We broke for dinner, I think about three hours in. And then kind of carried on in, in a Syrian restaurant next door. And the thing that I think was the most striking for this gentleman and others' stories was that he he was apologising to us for the details.
2: Louisa explains how time and time again he was saying, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry I had to tell you this. And then going into horrific detail. She noted down his story and carried on hunting for more survivors who could tell her what they had seen. The interviews continued for two and a half months, in any way possible.
1: We did things on Skype, we did things on voice notes, and it really is just a case of sort of being sufficiently plugged in that when that person is ready to talk, you, you are ready too.
2: It turned out that those that had been in hospital facility had come from all walks of life but they'd somehow been connected to the 2011 Syrian uprising. Some were its instigators. Others told Louisa they had done nothing more than comment on a Facebook status of one of their friends who supported the protests.
0: I
1: think we spoke to, it was certainly more than a dozen survivors and defectors, um, not just from Hospital 601, that was from hospitals, uh, three separate facilities in Damascus, one in the city of Homs, one in Aleppo, and also then we spoke to war crimes investigators, I think four in total, plus people who had previously worked on issues of detention. So I think it was about 24 in terms of the total number of
2: interviews. But Louisa could not get into Syria. It was far too dangerous to go in with the rebels, and she would never be given an official visa by the Assad government. So how do you go about confirming or fact-checking a story when you're in another country
1: entirely. I mean, fact-checking is a very difficult thing to do when it comes to the Syrian war. And I think we should always be very clear on what we do and we don't know. It is frustrating, but there are things we simply cannot know without being there. And I think that we as journalists have to make make a serious effort to make that clear in what we do. That said... You know, I have a network of my own contacts who I speak to very regularly. And we also consult monitoring groups and there are a plethora of different monitoring groups which are different and are good at monitoring different things. We also talk to uh, diplomats and try and sort of cross-check what we have with, with what they have and work out how to put the pieces together. But the thing that makes it hard apart from the fact that we're not there, is that as in any journalistic interview, the people you talk to always have, or nearly always have some sort of agenda. That is just the quid pro quo of what you do. And... At times, there is a huge amount of misinformation floating around, sometimes knowingly peddled. Other times, they don't know it's untrue, but they've read it on WhatsApp and they think that they need to tell you that this thing has happened. And it is very, very important to establish that this person has seen the thing that they are telling you. And then, of course, to you know, try and get any sort of documentation that they have and then speak to other people who have done that. Sometimes that means that you hear things which you may or may not believe to be true and you're not able to you're not able to publish them because you cannot prove them and then I think that is a huge challenge you know working out how to cut through that sort of morass of fact and fiction and all the rest
2: Once she had cross-referenced her sources and fact-checked all she could, it was time to write. But after more than 20 in-depth interviews with former detainees and NGO experts, Louisa had around 75 pages of transcripts.
1: It wasn't until I finally sat down and went through my notes that I think the horror of the full story I had been told by all these people really sank in because time and time again the details bore out from the names of the jailers to the you know the positioning of the beds what happened on certain days and it was absolutely horrifying to be frank
2: piecing together the stories revealed a torture system on a huge scale playing out inside the walls of the hospital facility sick prisoners tortured as they lay shackled in their beds Men forced to sleep next to corpses for entire nights, and sadistic guards enacting horrific tortures on the sick men. Four of the survivors described a particular prison guard. They nicknamed him Azrael, or the Angel of Death. He carried a stick laced with razor blades, which he would use to met out what he called justice on the deathly ill patients. Many died. The same guard was described as taking a lighter to a plastic bag and melting it drop by drop onto a prisoner's face until he had a heart attack. All of this was supposedly happening in a hospital facility located just half a mile from Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's palace. Assad did not respond to Louisa's repeated inquiries or requests for comment, but he denied any government wrongdoing in any detention centre in a previous interview given to Yahoo News. It's just
0: propaganda, it's just fake news. They want to demonise the Syrian government. In every war, you can have any individual crime. It happened all over the world, anywhere, but it's not a policy.
1: That's not something Louisa agrees with. It is not a case of a few bad apples, as the regime has occasionally argued. This is a systematic and industrialised system of torture, which with the knowledge of which goes right to the very top.
2: The story was printed on the front page of the Washington Post.
1: I was very anxious the night before it went out. I didn't actually know quite which evening it was going to be. I certainly didn't know it was going to be on the front page. And I did not anticipate the reaction that followed. Um, I think it got pretty widely read. And the thing that surprised me was that it started to be picked up by politicians, people like John McCain. I'm sure you saw the front page story about the prisons in Damascus and the thousands of people that are starved and beaten and, and assaulted and killed. Uh, look, this is, a, this is really the quintessence of evil.
2: And it wasn't just top politicians like John McCain who were taking note. Louisa was also contacted by those whose family members had disappeared into Syrian detention
1: because of the nature of the the secrecy surrounding these experiences you know there are some 100,000 Syrians still missing in Syria in these detention facilities their families often have very limited information people do not necessarily know what is going on to the people they love who are inside And I have had messages from people um, saying, thank you, you know, thank you for doing this. My son, my husband, uh, is believed to have died in these facilities. And also, but also, of course, saying that they found it very, very difficult.
2: war reporters need a thick skin. But something we don't talk enough about as journalists is the psychological toll doing these kind of stories can have. Add to that the strange feeling of covering a war from a distance. As I was talking to Louisa over the crackling Skype call, she explained how the physical distance could leave her confused about how much she's allowed to feel.
1: It's very strange to be, to cover a conflict so in some ways so intensely you know from the minute I get up to the minute I go to bed very often I am on my phone I am you know doing my best to report on what I can but at the same time I'm not there and that is a very weird thing to come to, to come to terms with you know I'm not there for very good reasons uh, you know I would need to be able to get a Syrian government visa if I were to go into Damascus and that's not happening for now and going in in northern Syria, with the, with the rebels, invites such a high kidnap risk at you know, the current moment that we we don't risk it. And it's a very strange thing to come to terms with whether one as an individual has a right to feel upset about things that they don't see um, or they don't see in person. And of course, it's not true that we don't talk to People in person, you know, to do this job, you have to spend a lot of time on the Syrian border, uh, you know, talking to people who have just come out, spending time in hospitals often to find people who have just come out of whatever attack you're reporting on.
2: But writing on Syria or the Middle East always attracts attention.
1: And there was certainly a moment where I just felt relieved that people hadn't turned around and said, you know, this is, um, this is too unbelievable, you know, where where is this story came from? And I realized that people were shocked because, you know, I had told a number of people I was working on this story and people often turned around to me and said, yeah, but why, why are you writing about detentions? You know, we know things are really bad in detentions. Is it really worth you spending this number of months on another story about Syrian prisons? And I hope that What I showed in the piece was that this is an important and really overlooked aspect of the detention experience. Um, And I hope I was vindicated on that.
2: Since she published, Louise has written several more front page stories for the Washington Post about Syria. She covered the sarin gas attacks that killed scores of people, many of them children, in April this year. She wrote about a car bomb that killed more than 100 people evacuating Aleppo. And as the conflict rages on, her reporting in the region looks set to continue for some time to come. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. Next time. I mean, we basically sat down and started talking and my jaw was just like on the floor. (laughs) Um, And he was incredibly candid. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism's Abigail Fielding-Smith talks about how she found a source who gave her a fascinating insight into the world of the Pentagon's psychological warfare operations. This has been A Tip-Off, hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with production advice from Lorna Stewart. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, and other music in this episode by Poddington Bear. Thanks to Louisa Loveluck, You can find the links to her story in the show notes. If you've liked this episode, please do tell a friend. Write us a review on iTunes and stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines.